inspiring the next generation to live for Christ in a hostile world. Why don't we pray together before we go any further? I could use some prayer for uh, strength of my voice, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the good day you've given us. Thank you for the enjoyable fellowship around these tables. The food was delightful, Lord, and the conversation was sweeter still. Thank you. What a reminder of just what a good, gracious, generous Father you are. And Lord, for the stories we've heard here today and last night of people who love their grandchildren, love their children, and yet feel the uh, sometimes the closed gate, sometimes even the locked gate, would you show your gracious hand, Lord, and unlock those gates and give opportunities, increased opportunities to share your gospel with the coming generations. And Lord, in this last session, I pray that you might help us know how to help the younger generation in living out the gospel in a hostile world. And Lord, I do ask for your strength, even in my voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Children tend to have good imaginations. And I think we kind of let them drift the older we get. (laughs) But can I ask you to join me in your imagination to picture what was going on in this, behind this story in the Bible. I invite you to come with me to Rome. Uh, Not Rome in our century, but first century Rome. I know a few of you have been to Rome and you've been through the ruins and the forum. Imagine being there in the first century where all those monuments and arches and buildings, Colosseum, were all still pristine. And as we walk in the forum, we could pause and look at all these monuments, but instead we veer off, just a little ways off the forum. We see a set of stone stairs that descend into the Mamertine prison, the infamous Mamertine prison. And as we descend those stone stairs into this dungeon-like subterranean prison cell, our eyes gradually adjust to the dim light. There in the middle of the room, we see an older man, about the age of some of us here in the room, in the 60s probably, bent over a stone table, and he's writing something in that dim light. He's writing his last letter to his son. And as we stand there unseen in this dungeon-like cell, we wonder what he's writing to his son, because this man's on death row. It's cold down there, he's shivering, and he's lonely. Except for his old friend Luke, everyone else is gone. We wonder, is he writing some letter of regret? Is he writing to his son, saying, Son, do whatever you can to avoid the situation I'm in. Go find someplace safe to live. Have a family. Look for a nice place to live a peaceful life. Or is he maybe writing a letter of protest? He's saying, son, I I don't deserve to be here. Do what you can. Talk to somebody. Pull some strings. Get me out of here. I haven't done anything that deserves being on death row. And we wonder what would happen if we could just look over his shoulder and see what he's writing. But we can. We know what he's writing because I have a copy and so do you. It's 2 Timothy, so why don't you join me in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, 
as most of you are familiar, is the last letter we have from the Apostle Paul. He's writing it from that Mamertine prison, death row. And many of Paul's contemporaries, many of Paul's contemporaries, men that he grew up with, uh, men that he grew up with in the schools, the rabbinic schools, would have looked at his current situation as so tragic. It's so sad what happened to this rabbi. Because as a young man, he showed such potential. He showed such ambition. Uh, This rabbi, as a young man, had a phenomenal career ahead of him. He could have been a well-known, well-respected, highly treated rabbi. And instead, somehow, he got involved with this Jesus of Nazareth. And look where it got him. For the last 30 years, he's lived a life of suffering. He's gone through all kinds of tortures and hardships and shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments. What a tragic life. What a tragic life. That would have been how many people would have seen his life. But what does he say? What does he say to his son in the faith? Timothy. Let's read. I'm going to start at the very beginning of 2 Timothy and read down through verse 14. So a little bit longer than some of the other passages we've read. But follow along in your copy or listen well to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. The word of God says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, listen, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I want you to remember this phrase from verse 8 in this session. But share 
in suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You know, I think, I think I'm preaching to the choir here, but let's just briefly review what we're talking about. What is the gospel? Friends, we're living in an era, even a Christian world, quote, Christian world, where the gospel is often Christless. I hear people say things like, yeah, need to get back to church, need to turn over a new leaf, or preachers that say, get your best life now, or, you know, things like that. And it's without Christ, it's Christless. But the gospel is not Christless. Let's banish Christless, quote, gospel presentation, gospel sermons. We want Christ to be honored. But in this passage, in verse 8, Paul calls the gospel the testimony about our Lord. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, not just finding inner peace, not just about living a better life. The gospel is about our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ who saved us. Saved us from what? Saved us from our sins. Saved us from the penalty that our sin deserves. Saved us from condemnation to hell. On what basis? Verses 9 and 10. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's the gospel. And so just for clarity, Paul, after mentoring Timothy now for 20 years, is reminding him again what the gospel is. It is the message of Jesus Christ who came to rescue us from our sin and the condemnation that we rightly deserve. Not because of anything we've done, but because of God, his purpose, his grace. What I want to do in this session is, I'm a fellow grandfather, I'm a fellow grandparent, right? As older people, we've lived longer. When you live longer, you tend to see trajectories more clearly. Uh, younger people don't have the life experience to see trajectories. They, they only have this many years in their life to look at. But the longer you live, the more you see patterns, you see trajectories. And I think a lot of us here in North America and, and other places in the world as well, we're looking at the trajectory and we realize that being a Christian in our today's culture is more difficult than it was maybe 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Christians are less respected now. In fact, Christians are, in some circles, despised, mocked. If, if I, the Lord could send revival tomorrow, that would be wonderful. But if he chooses to let this trajectory play out farther, I think it's going to get more difficult. And when I think of our grandchildren... What will life be like for them if they become followers, if they are followers of Jesus Christ? What is living the Christian life going to be like for them in 10 years, in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, if this trajectory continues? Life here in our country, here in our culture, might become increasingly difficult, increasingly hostile. And so the question I have for us as grandparents is, are we playing some kind of role? Are we contributing in some way in preparing our grandchildren for living for Christ in a hostile world? We're not the first generation to face this issue. There have been other cultures, other times in history, where living for Christ is, is dangerous. And we want our grandchildren to be safe. We want our grandchildren to have easy lives. But that might not be the case. They might live in a culture that's much more hostile than we have faced. Rather than being naive, is there some way we could call them 
to live for Jesus Christ? Is there some way we could invite them to live for Jesus Christ, even if living for Jesus Christ becomes increasingly more difficult, increasingly more painful? So that's what I'm addressing, calling our grandchildren to live for Jesus Christ in a hostile world. It's hostile now, and what if it gets more hostile in the years to come? That, that's a question I'm asking. If you read 2 Timothy, and even somewhat 1 Timothy, uh, the Apostle Paul talks to Timothy about a good deposit. That's a picture of something valuable, something that might be considered a, a treasure. And he says, guard the good deposit. You'll find that phrase several times in the pastoral epistles, especially in Timothy, the letters to Timothy. Guard the good deposit. The deposit being the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guard it, Timothy. Guard it. I'm going to use an illustration I've already used this weekend, just for our sake. And that's considering that good deposit like a baton. The gospel baton. And in this letter... Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, remember how you received the baton. Remember how you received the good deposit. So he's challenging Timothy, look back and remember how you got the gospel baton anyway. It wasn't to your credit. It was a grace of God through your mother, your grandmother, through me, other mentors in your life. You received the gospel baton. From infancy, from childhood, toddlerhood, you knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. You knew from the word of God how to be right with God through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Scriptures. That came from his mother and his grandmother. He says, now Timothy, you're running your race. I think of it as a lap, like everybody's race is one lap. And he's running his race, and Paul's telling Timothy in this letter, hang on to the baton. Guard the good deposit, son. Hang on to the gospel baton, it's gonna get hard. And we're gonna see ways it's hard. Paul's going to allude to facts, situations, hostile situations, where it would be real tempting to just chuck the baton. And then he says, make sure you pass it on. So, Timothy, remember how you received the baton. You run your lap hanging on to that baton and make sure you pass it on. Now, for our sake at this grandparenting seminar, let's assume that Timothy, in a sense, stands for our grandchildren. And so... Paul's writing to his son in the faith, and we're going to learn from the Word of God, from the Apostle Paul, um, how we might be able to talk to our grandchildren saying, remember how you received the gospel baton. Now guard it in your lifetime, in your lap as a Christian. Make sure you hang on to it. Don't chuck it. Don't drop it. Don't let anybody rip it out of your hands. And make sure you pass it on to yet another generation. So let's look at the letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, and see what we can learn. As we mentioned in the last session, Timothy received the gospel baton apparently from his mother and grandmother were the primary instruments. Paul said that in 2 Timothy 1.5. We just read that again. Paul would have been included in that as well. Verse 13 that we just read says, things you have heard from me. So Paul had different people in his life, but it's precious to realize that his faithful mother and grandmother shared the gospel. He wants Timothy to remember that. But then he wants Timothy to guard the good deposit with determination. As you run your race, verse 14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, if you think about that, what might make it hard? Now think about your grandkids. And let's 
Trust that God will be gracious to your grandchildren and save them if they're not already saved. And they're going to live for Jesus Christ in their lifetime in a world that isn't necessarily encouraging, isn't necessarily favorable to their testimony, to their life for Christ. What might be, what challenges might your grandkids, my grandkids, our grandkids face that might want them to look at that baton and say, this hassle isn't worth it. Chuck the baton. Or what might there be that starts to pry on that baton of the gospel, try to get it out of their hands? What challenges? And I think we can find pretty clear hints right in this letter. And the first one I'm going to mention that might be tempting for your grandkids, our grandkids, to chuck the baton is shame. Look at verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed. What's the root word in the word ashamed? Shame. Don't let shame. Shame is what? It's, it's the, the fear. Shame is the fear of uh, being ostracized or being mocked. Being told you're nothing or you're stupid or something like that. You know, we all have a tendency to read people. Now I think in some cases the older we get the less tempting this is. But I think even at our age we still try to read people in the sense of I wonder what they think of me. Someone said one time, when you're 25, you worry about what people think of you. When you're 50, you stop worrying about what people think about you. And when you're 75, you find out they weren't thinking about you after all. (laughs) No, that's not necessarily the case. But it's a fun thing to say, isn't it? (laughs) But, you know, we tend to read people no matter what age we are. Like, are they approving of me? Do they like me? Will they be my friend? Do they respect me? And, And I think For young people, particularly teenagers, that pull is especially hard in that transition from childhood to adulthood. You know, wondering, you know, do people like me? Do people accept me? And our tendency, our tendency is to try to figure that out and deliver what we think people are wanting from us. And sometimes you're about kids that get into certain things and you say, how in the world did that happen? Some of you have kids that got into things that you wish they hadn't gotten into. And as you look back, you realize that they have their own sinful issues, obviously, but they gave in to peer pressure. And then their friend said, hey, let's go do this. Hey, buddy, you want to go do this with me? Hey, let's go. And you know, and they don't want to be rejected. They don't want to be shamed. And so they think, well, the way to keep my friends or to make my friends, the way to get respect or honor or applause or something is I'll deliver what people are looking for. And they give in because they don't want to be shamed. Now, living for Jesus Christ and Him alone, how's that work? You know, I think about this, uh, you know, pick something very explicit. What if I were to teach my teenage grandchildren the only way to be right with God is by grace alone? through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I do teach our grandchildren that. But to teach our grandchildren, the the Word of God says the only way to be right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And what if our grandchildren come to faith in Christ and they believe that? And then they go to their friends, some of their unbelieving friends, or even maybe teachers at school, And say, you know, the only way to be right with God, 
is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the only way to be right with God. How's that going to go down? What are their friends likely to say in our culture today? Yeah, they laugh. They say, how could you be so narrow-minded? How dare you tell me that the only way to God is the way you think? That might be the way you think, but that's not the way I think. That might be the way you think of being. That might be your God, but that's not my God. And in our day, that's not only, not only the kids get you know, the accusation of being narrow-minded, but they get the accusation of being a hater. Why do you hate people that see it differently than you? Now, if you're 14, 15 years old, how much are you willing to risk? How much are you willing to risk for the cause of Christ? What's it going to take for you to say that to your friends? You know, I want you to be right with God, but the Word of God says the only way to be right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They could easily be shamed by their friends, maybe even their teachers at school. They could be shamed. And yet Paul's writing to his son and says, don't be ashamed. Don't let shame deter you from hanging on to the gospel baton. There's a second temptation in this letter that I see, and that's the whole temptation to chuck the baton because of the pain of rejection, the pain of loneliness, feeling alone. We didn't read verse 15 yet, but Paul says personally, you're aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And if you look over chapter 4, I think it's verse 16, it says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. The Apostle Paul himself knew the pain of desertion, knew the pain of being rejected by people that he thought were friends. And our grandkids want to have friends. They want to be a friend. They want to have friends. But what if standing up for Jesus Christ, what if following Jesus Christ means that they lose friends? It would be tempting for them to chuck the baton, the baton of the gospel, and say, this isn't worth it. I want my friends. I want friends in my life. What's our role as grandparents to help them to see the value of Christ and to hold on to that baton? A third temptation might be the fear of opposition or even persecution. Look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. It says, listen to this. I, I want you to appreciate the context of Paul saying this to his son Timothy. He says to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You still with me? my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me read verse 12 again and just comment on that. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. On the way, on our drive down there from Indiana, we went past a number of uh, cracker barrels. We didn't stop at any, but you know what I mean. You ever go into their little shop there? They, it's very neat how they have it laid out. You know, you have to go to the shop to go get lunch or breakfast or whatever. And they have those little spinner racks of books. 
And a lot of times, most of the time, they have these Bible promise books. Next time you see a rack with Bible promise books, flip through it and see if you can find 2 Timothy 3.10. Excuse me, 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That, that promise didn't make the cut. <laughs> but it sure sounds to me like a promise. <laughs> When Paul says, Timothy, you remember my suffering. You remember my persecution. And he named several cities. One of them was Lystra. Anybody remember Timothy's hometown? Lystra. Who remembers what happened to Paul at Lystra? He was stoned to the point they thought he was dead. And so they walked away. And in the Lord's providence, he got up. And went on preaching the gospel in other cities. Actually came back to Lystra later. Now I want you to appreciate this as a grandparent or as a parent. We try to protect our kids and grandkids from pain and painful stories, right? We don't want to overwhelm them. And, and there's an age appropriateness to how much you share. I understand that. But here, if my timing is right, Timothy was probably a teenager when Paul was stoned in Lystra. Maybe in his late teens. Consider him a high schooler, maybe a freshman in college, that age. And it's quite possible, I almost want to say probable, it is quite possible, maybe even probable, that a young teenage Timothy was standing beside that street the day that his mentor Paul came within an inch of his life. Is the Jews who were opposing him stoned him to the point that they assumed he was dead. That the streets of Lystra had the blood of Paul on them. And rather than saying, just blank it out of your mind, Timothy. Don't even think about that. Just try to forget it. That was a horrible day. He says, Timothy, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember. You know about my suffering, my persecutions at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. Do you remember that, Timothy? Do you, do you remember seeing me lying on the streets of your hometown with my blood on the stones? Do you, do you, do you remember that, Timothy? He wants Timothy to remember what his mentor went through for the sake of the gospel. Paul's wanting to elevate in Timothy's mind that Jesus Christ is worth suffering for, that Jesus Christ is worth dying for. Yes, Timothy, you remember that, don't you? Timothy, I didn't let go of the gospel baton that day. I didn't retire from the gospel ministry that day. I didn't say, Chuck this. I ain't doing this anymore. And head home to Tarsus. No, he, he stayed true to the gospel. He got up and continued to preach. There's another temptation, and that's the craving for popularity. And you read that in chapter 4. Where in chapter 4, around verse 3, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so here's, here is the spiritual father on death row for the sake of the gospel, writing his last letter to his son, and he says, don't be ashamed of Christ, don't be ashamed of me as prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. 
Guard the good deposit, Timothy. Hang on to the gospel baton. Even if it means suffering, even if it means death. Do you read this? I mean, these, these are real people. These are real people, Paul and Timothy. Can you imagine? I mean, think of your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter. Can you imagine writing something like this to your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter? Can you imagine writing to them? You're dying for the sake of the gospel. You've been imprisoned. You're going to be executed for being a Christian, for declaring the gospel. And you're writing your last letter to your family. And you say to them, join me in suffering for the gospel. Stay on this track that I'm on. Son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter. Not avoid this path. Join me on it. Who in his right mind would write that? Why, why would he write that? What would motivate Paul to write this to his son in the faith? It's a value statement, isn't it? It's, it's a value statement. We make value judgments all the time. You go to a restaurant, you don't order everything on the menu, do you? You say, this sounds better to me than that. I choose this instead of that. You decided what to wear today. You looked in your drawer or in your closet and you said, I think I'll wear that instead of that. We make value statements in trivial ways. We make value choices in more significant way. Yes, I will marry this person. No, I won't marry that person. But the most significant thing of all is, will I put my faith in Jesus Christ? Will I commit my life to follow him no matter what? No matter what? And you know, even though our world, our culture here in North America is becoming increasingly hostile, we still have it pretty easy. You talk to some people from some other countries. Let me remind you, friends, that as we're sitting here today in the comfort of this room, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries who are going to die for their faith today. I can almost be assured that today we have brothers and sisters and who knows where, North Korea, North Africa, who today will have their heads cut off, be executed, die of starvation in a prison somewhere because of their faith in Jesus Christ. What would lead anyone to stick with Christ even if it means suffering? Because Jesus Christ is worth more than anything this world has to offer. Jesus Christ is worth more than everything this world has to offer. If you were to compare, you make a value judgment. You compare what this world has to offer, all the baubles and balls of this world, all these things that this world has to offer, and compared to Jesus Christ, you say, I want Christ. I want Christ. I want to follow him no matter what. Now, we all here have some influence. Some have more than others, but we all have some influence on our grandchildren. What message are we giving them by the way we live, by what we say? Are we living in very self-protective, self-preservation ways? Are we willing to risk our finances, our time, our energy, our reputations for the sake of Christ? And if the day comes when we need to give more than that, when we need to give our freedom, we need to give our lives for the sake of Christ, are we willing to pay that price? Are we saying, 
Jesus Christ is worth it. Jesus Christ is worth it. I remember 15 years ago or so, we sent a single lady from our church to North Africa. And uh, she said she was going to write God a blank check. And she was going to one of the most dangerous places in the world. And at her commissioning service, I was sitting beside one of our elders. He oversees our international or global missions. And he leaned over to me and says, I wonder if we've just commissioned our first martyr. And I started crying. I thought it could be. Now she's still living, but I thought that was the right perspective. And pastorally, I mean, she's like a niece, you know. Pastorally, I thought, are we out of our minds? Why would we commission this godly young lady to go to North Africa? Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. That spreading his fame in North Africa is more valuable than life itself. So Paul's writing to Timothy. And he's saying, consider your value system, son. We're interacting with our kids, our grandkids. Are we communicating to them that Jesus Christ is worth more than anything this world has to offer, more than everything this world has to offer? Listen, buddy. Listen, sweetheart. Even if it means you suffer, I'm sorry. I don't want you to suffer. But even if God in his providence takes you down the path of suffering, I want you to know he's worth it. Timothy was also to pass the gospel baton on yet to another generation. 2 Timothy 2.2, pretty easy to remember, 2 Timothy 2.2, okay? You won't forget that now. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many generations do you hear in that one verse? How many spiritual generations? At least four. Yeah, I agree with Bruce. At least four. There's Paul, first generation. Timothy, second generation. Faithful men, third generation. We'll be able to teach others also. That would be the fourth generation. But the implication is, it would just keep on going. And if you think about it, here we are today, 2023, in Clearwater, Florida. And in a sense, it's still going on. And for those of us who are older, we're, we're pouring into the next generation so that they would pour into the next generation. I was talking to our grandkids one day. And I said, you know one thing that motivates me to be a godly example to you is your grandfather? Because I want you to be a good grandparent someday. <laughs> and one of our granddaughters looked at me like, what? You know, I'm a kid. And I, I said, listen, sweetheart, you live long enough. Guess what? You will probably, in the Lord's normal providence, be a grandma someday. And I want you to learn from your grandma and me. I want you to learn from us how to be a godly grandparent. Because someday you're going to be there. And I want you to keep it going. I, I want you to have an impact on our great great-grandchildren. Not just our great-grandchildren, but our great-great. I won't be alive when they are growing up, but Lord willing, I'll meet them in heaven, you know. But that vision for the future, that, that we're not passive as grandparents. We're not passive. We're not just kind of hoping it all works out, but we're instruments, agents in the hand of a sovereign God, reaching the coming generation with his gospel encouraging them, challenging them, calling them to live for Jesus Christ, even if life gets hard, even if life gets harder, that Jesus Christ is worth living for. You know, there are only so many things in life that are really worth living for. I was talking to someone on a break, on the break or afterwards last night sometime, 
I just read a quote from C.S. Lewis recently, and I didn't memorize it, but he said something like, the history of the human race is people looking for something other than God, and they never find it. You know, they're looking for happiness, they're looking for fulfillment, they're looking for purpose somewhere, but they don't want God. They don't want God telling them what to do. But that's the history of the human race, not just modern America, but the world. You know, and this world is going to try to tell our grandkids, this is worth living for, that's worth living for, and it's not. And so if they're going to ever hear the truth, they're going to hear it, Lord willing, from their parents, but even if not from their parents, to hear it from us as grandparents. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That there's no other way to be right with God except through Jesus Christ. That we tell them that and tell them that he's worth it. As we look back over last night and today, We've looked at a number of things. We looked at God's calling on our lives. One generation shall tell another generation. We'll commend your works to another. Or one of my favorites, Psalm 78. We'll not withhold these things. We'll tell the coming generation, verse 7 of Psalm 78, so that they would set their hope in God. As Christ followers, there's only a few things worth living for. There's even fewer things worth dying for. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. If you're listening to me right now and you're thinking, that sounds kind of hard. I don't know if I can challenge my grandkids to do that. Let me remind you of some things we read here. Verse 12 says, But I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Verse 14 By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So if you're looking at yourself and you're saying, I don't know if I've got what it takes, guess what? You're right. People say, I don't think I can do this by myself. Well, that's true. You're not by yourself, though. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells Timothy, the Holy Spirit that indwells you can help you with this. So remember whose you are. Remember that God, in his kindness, has given all of us as Christians individually and collectively as his church, he's given us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can empower us, enliven us, strengthen us to pour into the coming generations his gospel. And so we call them to guard the good deposit. I read the end of 2 Timothy, or the closing comments in 2 Timothy in chapter 4, where Paul said this, Verses 6 through 8. He said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. These words in 2 Timothy are the last we have from the Apostle Paul. We don't know exactly what happened next. But church tradition, which seems to be probably pretty accurate in this case, church tradition is that not long after Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he was led out to a public concourse, a public road coming into the city and laid his head on the block. And a Roman soldier, official of some kind, beheaded him Was his end tragic? His contemporaries would have said so. I believe with all my heart 
that the moment his head was severed from his body, the Apostle Paul heard the most blessed words that any human ears could ever hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. Well done, good and faithful servant. Wouldn't you love to hear those words? Not that I'm always faithful to this, but I tell people that my, my aspiration, my, my goal, is to live for that one, that day, and those words. To live for that one, that day, and those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we have many things that we can be called to do in life. One of the things, very important things, that we have in common here in this room is pouring the gospel into the coming generations. That we would be faithful to that calling. That we would tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, that they might set their hope in God. Let me pray for you, that you would be faithful to that and that I would be faithful to that, and then we'll see what questions, comments you have before we draw our seminar to a close here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ, that he voluntarily came to this fallen planet, that he lived the life that we should have lived but didn't, that he died the death we should have lived but didn't, that he rose again as proof, living proof, that everything he did fully satisfied your righteous requirements that he's ascended on high, ruling and reigning right now. Lord, I would ask us as the older generation that our treasuring of Christ, our valuing of Christ would increase the older we get, that our joy in Christ would continue to grow until we see him face to face. And Lord, that you would give us the privilege, the motivation, the fuel, the courage, to call the coming generations to join us in living for Jesus Christ and if necessary, suffering and dying for Christ. Lord, I pray for the folks here in this church, the grandparents in this church, Lord, that you would use them mightily in their own families, but also in the families in this church, Lord, that even relationships intergenerationally that are not biological would be experiencing your pleasure and impacting the coming generation in ways that are increased even from the past. So come and empower us, please, by your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your kindness and being here and your good input. But let me just ask, as we wrap things up, other questions, comments, corrections that you have? Hi, my name is Shelley. And I would just love for our church to be able to have some kind of chat group or Facebook group or something like that where we can all share ideas of being the best grandparents that God has called us to be. Amen. Good idea. We should do that in our church too. We have a grandfather in our church that's uh, starting. He wants to call the grandparents together to pray like once a month. Just nothing real formal. Just get together and pray for grandkids. And by the way, a number of you have said we're blocked from our grandkids spiritually. Claudine was reminding me in the car this morning, I think, that uh, you know, one thing we can do is not only pray, but even get together with Christian friends and pray. 
for the grandchildren that way. And um, I'll just say this, that one of my co-pastors had a wayward daughter, young adult daughter, and I'll never forget the day that they started contacting their friends in our church and said, would you come to our house at this time and join us in praying for our daughter and her salvation? And I remember sitting on their steps because there was no other place to sit. Their house was packed. And to hear Christian friends gathering around them, praying passionately for the salvation of their daughter, and the Lord saved her marvelously. And she's a young mother, wife now, her husband's a pastor in Holland, Michigan. And, um, you know, and just to think, the parents had the humility to call their friends and say, our daughter needs Christ, would you join us in praying for her? Not just in a, yeah, sure, I'll pray for her, but come to our house at three o'clock on Sunday afternoon and join us in praying for her salvation. I mean, even doing radical things like that, do it, do it. So if you're blocked, you know, storm the gates of heaven. (laughs) Get your friends to join you and storm the gates of heaven, saying, Lord, please unlock that door, that gate that we would be able to impact our grandkids with your name, with your glory. Yeah, getting together, chat group, Facebook group, something, a grandparenting group in the church. I'm not you know, saying what has to happen here at Lakeside, but to look for ways. And it could be initiated even by the grandparents in the church, I'm sure. Before I forget, there are resources out there. I mentioned a couple times in passing, there's two national Christian grandparenting ministries, movements. The larger one is called Legacy Grandparenting Coalition, or just Legacy Coalition. They do an annual conference, and they also have over 100 simulcast sites. I was on a Zoom call a couple days ago uh, with the leaders, and we had 108 simulcast sites last year. They're hoping for more this year. I don't know if there's any in this area. I know there was one in Bradenton last year because we met the lady that hosted it. But uh, churches can host simulcast. And the, and the speakers are usually pretty good. I mean, it's, it's evangelical. I wouldn't say it's you know, reformed necessarily, although they've had some really good speakers. John Stone Street last year, Crawford Loritz, people like that. So get on that. They also have a lot of resources. So if you look on the resource page, there's books and, and blog posts and podcasts. The other Christian grandparenting organization is called Christian Grandparenting Network. And it's very solid. Gladie and I are involved with both of them. Christian Grandparenting Network. They do a lot of prayer. So they put out suggestions how to pray for your grandkids. Like every day there's something going on about how to pray for your grandkids. Uh, Wonderful ministries. And again, they have resources. Our own ministry, Walking Like Jesus Ministries, we have some grandparenting resources, videos, blog posts. And if I write a blog post for someone else, I've done a couple for like Focus on the Family, New Growth Press, whatever. Uh, They usually let us, after so many days, to put it on our website. So you can look at our website, too, and get some help. But there's resources out there. I'm just encouraging you, don't don't let your growth stop today. I hope that this weekend was just launch. This was launch. Let's see what the Lord does from here on. This is the beginning for a lot of us. Let's see what the Lord does in the coming months and years.